Shot of the Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me, as always, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Hey. Yeah, I'm going well. I am. Uh, this is going to be the last bit of recording I do before going on a little bit of a brief hiatus whilst I go on holiday and move house. So I'm looking forward to, you know, some time off work, but also not looking forward to moving house because no one likes moving house. No, no. I think the worst move I ever had was the last place I lived in in Sheffield before I moved to the States. I had been living in a flat above a hairdresser's and I moved in to a house with some friends who lived just down the road from where that flat was. So that was great and convenient, but I didn't really have any money to pay to like get a van or anything so i just had to spend a week putting all of my stuff into a suitcase and wheeling it down the road to move it into their house and uh yeah it was very very tiring (laughs) Mm. but uh i guess cost effective yeah yeah, it was it was a pretty it was pretty grueling taking everything down the road i once moved house uh on my own due to a you know a kind of like i mean i won't bore you with the details but there was a, Mm. a relationship breakdown and I ended up right. moving um, just across the road. Um, mm-hmm. So I lived on one side of the road and then I moved to the other side of the road. And I was moving everything that I could carry on my own. But I decided to maybe push myself a little too far by trying to move a double mattress on my own. And there was a point mm. at which I got it to the crossing, of the, the pedestrian crossing. <laughs> and I pushed the button and then I kind of hauled it onto my back. And then I was just walking across the road like bent over at 90 degrees my, like looking straight down like some kind of weird tortoise and then I kind of got to the other side of the road and realised that the, the lights had gone again and the cars had just had to wait for me and I got to yeah. the other side and there was these two dudes and like neither of them spoke English and they were just like dude we're going to help you take this wherever you want to go because this is embarrassing to watch <laughs> and uh, they didn't know what they didn't know is that I lived on the third floor of a, like, uh, a maisonette Aww. so they had to help me all the way to the top but by god they helped me it reaffirmed mm-hmm. my uh, my faith in humanity and also fucking suckers <laughs> they're really fun <laughs> yeah you look like you're struggling with something someone will help you um, mm. but yeah that was uh, yeah that was probably the most painful move I've done and I think I just I, I decided to quit after that and I just you know, get a van. Someone will do it yeah. for you. Yeah, and it's fun to just tear around in a big old van. Yeah, everyone loves it. And if you, it like, no one will help you move unless there's a van involved. If you say right, to someone, yeah. oh, do you want to come and help me move? They're like, oh, yeah, I'll think about it. You never hear from them. But you say, we've got a van and we've got it for, like, the <laughs> weekend, then, you know, people lose their shit. Yeah, real lads on tour stuff. Exactly. Even if it is just the tour of... A, a couple of streets over from where you currently live. Yeah, and ultimately it's quite a sad endeavour, but, you know, a van. A van makes everything a little bit brighter. Mm. So we'll go on to the news for this week, and I think probably the biggest piece of news that broke over the last couple of days by some considerable measure was the firing of James Gunn from Guardians of the Galaxy 3. James Gunn had previously written and directed the first two movies and had been working kind of fairly closely with Disney to kind of shepherd through the the cosmic arm of the MCU that's been kind of the developing between those movies and the Thor movies. And Wednesday or Thursday of this week, uh, a lot of people on Twitter started to share 
old tweets that he had written, which in which he joked about things like rape and paedophilia and kind of drawing this to attention of Disney. And after a couple of days, this Disney fired him for them. And what kind of complicates this, apart from it being like something where you can kind of say, okay, I can see why this would maybe be some sort of public relations thing that Disney would not want to be involved with, was that the outrage was largely started and driven by... Uh, Mike Cernovich and a lot of the people on the alt-right, Mike Cernovich is kind of a really detestable human being who kind of propagates conspiracy theories such as the the infamous Pizzagate uh, conspiracy theory and generally tries to smear the uh, reputations of people who are uh, critics of uh, Donald Trump and, you know, the, the right wing in general. So, uh, yeah, so this has been like a real messy awful situation that's unfolded over the last couple of days Mm. there was there was a weird twitter thing that happened where i logged on and saw it and then Mm. then i messaged you and said oh have you seen this news james gunn's been fired and then there was this whole thing about when you learn about something on twitter you have to kind of then work backwards to try and find out why everyone's so mad and how it began and i had that and i was just trying to work out what had happened and it looked like, um, for all intents and purposes, um, a hit job. Um, mm. Whilst no one could defend uh, the tweets and the jokes because they're, they're kind of not funny, they're in you know very poor taste. Whilst you know made by someone who used to work for Troma, uh, it yeah. shouldn't be a particularly a surprise. But James Gunn had acknowledged a lot of those tweets and acknowledged a lot of his behaviour in like the last ten years. Um, and, you know, was very open and upfront about the fact that he used to be a dick um, mm. and he was, like, trying to learn and kind of heal and, and you know, become a better person. And uh, I saw um, his brother take to Twitter today to essentially say that's what the Guardians of the Galaxy movies are about. They about, mm. you know, people who need to uh, step up and, and, and grow as people in order to, to move forward. And... Whilst I can kind of see what's happened, I don't really understand Disney's reaction to it, why they would fire someone who, for tweets that existed before he started the relationship, I can understand that they would be, you know, if someone were like, oh, do you know this director you're about to start working with tweeted mm-hmm. these things, they might be like, oh, okay. and But like this director who's been working with you for what six years um, and only been doing that he's you know had a couple of side hustles going on but you know he has been directing only for marvel um and you know he's doing some producing on other stuff to fire him seems crazy to fire him to appease a known bad person and this isn't just like being like ideologically opposed to mike cernovich like the guy has like written think pieces about how date rape isn't a thing, mm-hmm. uh, and you know just some just genuinely awful things that you know put everything that James Gunn said in his shitty jokes, like like they they've got to blow those completely out of the water, and yeah, it's just the fact that it's happened this way kind of leave, leaves a lot of weird questions in the open, like you know can anyone kind of pile on and drag up something that was, you know, everyone said something stupid in the time, drag this up and get you fired. But at the same time, Disney's still working with Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. 
which yeah. is just you know that's just what message does that send yeah it's like i think the the comparison that i think people because a lot of the people involved in this on the the the, the cernovich side are all obviously operating in bad faith they don't believe that these tweets are genuinely offensive they're just doing it to kind of get someone and like a lot of people seem to see this as like revenge for disney firing roseanne Mm -hmm. and the comparison there would be this well they fired roseanne for like tweeting bad things like yeah well they fired roseanne for tweeting bad things whilst that she was working for disney at which point it was like oh this is damaging to our current relationship and our current projects we need to get her off and also she had been like tweeting out like hateful conspiracy theory bullshit for years and years and years as well whereas like james gunn tweeted terrible things like years and years ago and has tried to grow and change as a person so like they're very very different situations and like if there wasn't this alt-right element to it and he was still being fired i think i would still be like very disappointed in disney for doing it this way because like 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 you say this stuff happened like off their watch and really and truthfully if they were if they hired him because he was like a guy who had done a lot of weird edgy stuff before mm-hmm. and which they must have known about because obviously of his history with trauma it does seem very strange for them to do it now and it seems like they've just kowtowed somewhat unthinkingly because of the possibility of bad pr Whereas instead, but what we've we've seen like over the last couple of days is like petitions asking them to rehire him and things like that. And members of the cast of Guardians of the Galaxy, particularly Dave Bautista, have stepped forward and said, no, this is wrong for you to have done this. And, you know, trying to argue in his favour, like this isn't as clear cut as the Roseanne thing where there was pretty much clear condemnation from pretty much all sides for what she said. And then like a small group of people like saying like oh she did nothing wrong why would you fire her mm. you know like this is very much this has probably stirred up much more controversy than if they just like looked at the the controversy maybe waited a few days to kind of get all the facts together looked up who the hell mike cernovich was and been like oh yeah this is not a person we should take even remotely seriously and you know then just had him like have james gunn delete his twitter account or whatever yeah I mean, kind of weird to think where this leaves Guardians of the Galaxy as well. I mean, it's something that it seems so tied to a singular vision and idea and whether or not that can be, you know, transplanted if they bring in another director. I mean, obviously, that's not the most important thing, worrying about this, but, like, you know, Marvel and Disney like money. Um, and they like yeah. making it, and they're going to have to carry on somewhere. And it, it seemed to me that he was the extra guardian uh, on that team, mm. and that they all were in it together. And it'd be kind of unusual to see where this goes. The precedent really is 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 the Edgar Wright and Ant Man thing, but that felt less of a departure and less of a um, you know someone who could come in and get the same kind of tone is not the same thing as someone who built the whole enterprise from the ground up. Yeah, because, like, with Edgar Wright, there was more just that, like, the, the thing was already kind of in motion. Mm-hmm. and But they didn't really have to worry about maintaining his work. It was more just a case of going, okay, we kind of know what the script is, and we're just going to kind of, like, go ahead with a different director with who also has kind of a kinetic visual style, and it all kind of worked. Whereas this is, like, like you say, they've 
so much of what makes those Guardians of the Galaxy movies work, and I would say particularly the second one, which I think is really, really good and interesting and very clearly indicative of James Gunn's personality, is so tied to him as writer-director. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of hard to imagine that you'll be able to get someone in who will be able to continue the work that he did without it feeling strange and forced. Like if they just kind of are like, okay, uh, here's some seventies pop hits, I guess. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, just kind of here's some, some funny banter, you know? So, yeah. So creatively, it seems like it could be, uh, it, it could be harmful to however that third film shakes out mm. and, you know, who knows how it's going to affect the MCU going forward. Mm. But yeah, like, like you say, that's kind of like, for me, that's kind of a secondary concern over like the fact that, uh, the tactics of Gamergate have been used very effectively in this instance to kind of take down a, a prominent critic who the of Donald Trump who these people don't like. And uh, yeah, just like the fact that it's it's worked this time, you would kind of hope that studios will maybe get a little wise going forward and kind of think, look into how these outrages online start and you know if they are coming from a place of like good faith and general outrage genuine outrage as opposed to people just shit stirring to see if they can get a scalp uh but or but it makes you worry if maybe it will just embolden all these people to say who can we get fired today who can we smear and drive out of well not out of hollywood but out of their high-paying job mm. uh or how can we make te- Senator Ted Cruz of Texas look like even more of an idiot today by having him, like, say, if these tweets are true, he should be prosecuted. It's like, if these tweets <laughs> are true, if these these things where he's talking about the giving tree giving blowjobs, mm. it's just like, uh, <laughs> don't, don't think that's true. Well, yeah. yeah. Vote for Beto O'Rourke in the Senate election in, in November, everyone, mm. if you can, if you live in Texas. Because uh, at least he's probably not going to tweet shit like that out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, also this week, obviously, Comic-Con is in full swing, and we've started to see a lot of stories and trailers come out of out of that. Um, have there been any highlights for you? I've, I've rather enjoyed seeing the trailers for the Good Omens TV series. You know, they showed a bit of footage of that and interviews with the cast, and that's one of my favourite books. So uh, it was very exciting to kind of see that taking shape for me. And, and even though... I don't watch Doctor Who anymore because I kind of dropped off towards the end of the Moffat era when uh, things just it just got really annoying to me. Uh, I have liked what they've shown so far of Jodie Whittaker as as the new Doctor. Mm. I'm not someone who has ever really been into Doctor Who, never really understood it. Um, but I'm probably going to watch this one because people are upset mm. about it um, <laughs> for the wrong reasons. And a fine Yorkshire lass. Yep, exactly. Plainer. I enjoyed the Godzilla trailer. Um, yes, I kind of the the Gareth Edwards. Oh, we always get the Gareths confused. It was Gareth Edwards, wasn't it? Who did Godzilla? Yeah. I kind of enjoyed that one. I just felt it was a bit dour mm. uh, in places for a movie about you know Godzilla. Um, yeah. um and this seems like not like a comedy. Uh, although the pairing of the music over the top of the uh, trailer was pretty uh, pretty fun, but you know the idea that we're going to see these titans, as they keep saying, in what must be the most high concept pitch at this point that, you know, to save the world, we need to release all these giant monsters. 
Um, mm-hmm. And they're going to scrap it out. They're, we're going to see them fighting. And uh, that seems yeah. exciting to me. And I seem to like everyone in it. And uh, did I spot Carl Chandler in the trailer there? Telling people that they're out of their goddamn mind, which I don't know if that's something he's ever said in a movie before, but it feels like <laughs> something he should have said to everyone because he's that just seems like a very Kyle Chandler kind of mind. He'd just be really angry with everyone. Mm, you're out of your goddamn mind, Carol. Um, <laughs> I'm, sure he, I'm sure he said that in Carol. Mm-hmm. Um, but he uh, he's someone who probably is very rational in all the films he does. So yeah. everyone else must seem like they're out of their goddamn minds. And to be honest, uh, the people in charge of uh, the events in the film, Godzilla, King of Monsters, uh, do seem out of their minds um, mm. because... The solution to most problems isn't release a giant moth. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they they appear to have gone and put all their eggs in that particular moth shaped basket. Mm. Yeah, it looks it looks very cool. That shot of Mothra's wings kind of spreading uh, against what looks like a load of water and light looks looked very very cool. And I was quite pleased to see that it's being written and directed by Michael Doherty, who previously did uh, Trick or Treat and Krampus. Mm. He's he's someone whose work, particularly Trick or Treat, I really like, and it's kind of like nice to see that he's being given a very very big canvas on which to work with this one. And like you say, it seems to maybe be closer in tone to you know the the Japanese Godzilla movies, which you know they can have serious portentous themes going under the surface, but for the most part, it's like okay, you're going to get some big monster fights and then some kind of like compelling but often like charmingly goofy stuff with the humans whereas Mm. a lot of the human stuff in the 2014 godzilla was like this human is going to go from one place to another just so that you can see the monsters where (laughs) they weren't like whereas uh what's his name uh aaron taylor johnson was it Yes, yes he was definitely in it yeah where like he wasn't like they didn't really give him anything particularly interesting or compelling to do so mm. it's, whereas this time it's like you know they've cast like you say it's, it's just a cast full of fun interesting actors who hopefully will be able to enliven the bits when the monsters aren't fighting which is all you can really mm. ask for from a Godzilla movie yeah yeah it's been pretty heavy on the the DC uh, EU mm-hmm. um, at Comic Con uh, we had um, the Wonder Woman people there which was good to see uh, Chris Pine's uh, peach ensemble he was oh, wearing yeah. a kind of head to toe peach denim mm-hmm. uh, which is a look that I enjoy um, the Shazam trailer came out which yes. um, seems to have Zachary Levy falling around injecting some much needed humour into DC movies mm-hmm. uh, and then also Aquaman was their big one um, and my favourite thing about the Aquaman uh, business coming out is people on Twitter, a lot of people were pointing out that they had used stock images of sharks on the poster, um, <laughs> which is something that I can't quite get my head around. Did they think that they were going to drop Jason Momoa to the bottom of the ocean floor, have him surrounded by dangerous predators, and then snap a picture for the poster? Or did they think they would use pictures of sharks? Um, <laughs> it's, that was there was just it wasn't just one person that was what was funny about it it was just a lot of people who were like oh god i can't believe they've copped out and used the stock image here and it's like well okay they should have hired in that shark wrangler get his you know armada of highly trained shark models yeah pose for this picture it's like people who were disappointed when michael phelps didn't actually race against a real shark for that mm. uh, Shark Week thing, where it's like, oh no, they just had him swim across a pond. They measured uh, across a pool. They measured his 
speed and then they superimpose the shark over it to show how fast they can go. It's like, yeah, they weren't going to drop him. They weren't going <laughs> to give him like a five second head start <laughs> and just kind of like let the shark loose as, as um, compelling as that would have made uh, a television as that would have made. Yeah, I'd have watched it. And they probably would have got to the end of the race and just like smoked a massive bifter <laughs> uh, together and it would have all been fine. Um, yeah. But yeah, it seems like the DC slate looks a little less kind of grey beige and, and you know, sad, mm-hmm. uh, I guess. Now that uh, Zack Snyder's not involved, it definitely seems to be like they've moved away from his colour palette. Which uh, apparently they've also done a lot for Wonder Woman. I haven't seen if they've released any footage of Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, that they're they're but apparently what I've heard is that it's a lot brighter and like they're really emphasising the fact that it's set in the 80s, which could possibly be a little aggravating if they go too far on it or a little bit uh, kind of annoying. But it also would make for a nice change. Uh, which mm. I think is also the thing that you really see in the Shazam trailer, which does look very funny and charming and silly, which uh, is kind of what you need for a superhero like Shazam. Like, that's a concept that's going to be very hard to do in the thuddingly serious Zack Snyder mould. Mm, yeah, and they, they do need some levity. They do need something to make people want to watch them because they are on a hiding to nothing um, yeah. from kind of Marvel and you know Logan came out like last year and proved that you can do a deadly serious superhero movie but you've got to have good people in charge mm. yeah um, and the right story uh, and the right story you can't just take Batman versus Superman and uh, you know make ground it in reality because it's not what we want to see Mm, yeah, although the trailer for the Titans TV series does seem to suggest that someone at DC still thinks maybe we should try the Grim Gritty thing one more time by having Robin just say, fuck Batman. It's like, ooh, mm. edgy. Yeah, yeah. I kind of I didn't see that trailer, but I saw a lot of people going, really? Uh, mm-hmm. is, is this what you've got? Okay, fine. Uh, and then people saying, now is the opportunity to see Robin and say, fuck. He was just like, who was clamoring for that? <laughs> uh, no one. Uh, it does make for a really funny contrast, though, because the Teen, Ti- Teen Titans Go movie comes out this week in theatres in the US. And that is a show that is very like funny and silly and kind of like self-referential and wildly popular. I was kind of like thinking... Hmm. They're just some someone at DC just isn't getting the message that maybe this approach isn't isn't really what people want. Maybe mm. they want something that's kind of a little lighter and sillier and charming. Yeah, um, they're gonna have to try it eventually. I think um, the best chance they've got is Shazam. It looks like a goof, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, personally, I'd like to see them try. Uh, and do something with Aquaman the, in the way that they did with Thor. And Thor was kind of an inherently silly premise. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they've now moved it to the point where the third Thor movie is a straight comedy. Mm. Um, and J- J- Jason Momoa always seems like a fairly funny guy. Yeah. Um, and kind of a lot, like kind of a likable guy in the way that has the Chris Hemsworth has that you'd probably have a nice time down the pub with him. It'd be, you know, good fun. And uh, you'll probably end up going and throwing axes at something at the Almost end. Almost certainly. Um, so yeah, it would be cool to see them try something like that, but uh, you know, we'll see if I think they're going to be trying to establish that character first. Yeah, um, but they are 
you know, starting from the ground up, I guess, again. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm still, even though I haven't liked any of the DC movies, well, I liked half of Wonder Woman, so I've liked half of the DC movies since Man of Steel. I'm mm-hmm. still kind of rooting for them because I do like those characters and, like, there is fun to be had with them. It's just that, you know, they've had to take some... Uh, They've had to take a long, a long path to realise that maybe they should make fun movies. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they ought to. Yeah, because yeah, course, movies should be fun, really. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have movies that are fun. Maybe they should have them singing ABBA songs. That seems to be what people are really into right now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, obviously, we were just talking about DC, which ties into our and Mamma Mia, which uh, also kind of ties into this because both those movies are 10 years old. This week is the 10-year anniversary of of The Dark Knight, which is probably one of the most acclaimed comic book movies and arguably one of the most influential blockbusters of the the past decade. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been lots of people writing about it over the last week. Polygon had, like... Dozens of writers writing on every possible aspect of that movie. I recommend people go over there and check out some of their coverage because it was it was really, uh, it, some may say, too in depth in their examination of the Dark Knight, but uh, certainly points to the importance of the movie, or at least the fascination that the culture still has with that movie. And yeah, so you and I both thought, oh, this seems like the perfect time for us to talk about it as well because it is such a a movie that casts such a, a long shadow over blockbuster cinema, over comic book movie cinema, which at this point is is pretty much synonymous with each other, but also over a lot of, you know, internet culture and fan culture uh, and a lot of, certainly a lot of the things that we've been discussing over the last like, year in terms of toxic fandom seems to have some of its roots uh, in the Dark Knight, whether or not uh, that was intended or not. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting to rewatch it because I've I've only ever seen it once through mm. in its entirety. I've seen bits of it when it's kind of been on TV and stuff, or I've you know caught a little bit here and there. But in terms of actually watching it from start to finish, this was only my second time. Um, it's quite a good movie, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I watched. Yeah, I rewatched it today for the first time in probably six or seven years. It's it's a movie that. Uh, I will occasionally watch scenes from, and certainly will watch jokes from. For example, uh, earlier on today, I retweeted, I tweeted out for like the seventieth time the video uh, someone took of the, the 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 tangerine speech that Michael Caine gives, where they just change it to have him just constantly talking about tangerines instead of talking about you know being in Burma and tracking someone down, uh, mm. which is one of my favorite internet videos because it's just so relentlessly silly. But yeah, it was it was very interesting rewatching it, free from the initial hype because I I saw it at midnight screening the day that it opened. Uh, mm-hmm. I left work early because this was when I was working at Rare and doing thirteen hour days, so uh, I was allowed to leave at the the princely hour of ten p.m. to go to watch the movie on a Thursday night at midnight. Uh, and it was like with all the hype and everything, it was just like for me, like a really amazing experience. And I thought it was like a really fantastic kind of game changing movie and things like that. And I think maybe I overvalue it as a work, as a kind of a work of storytelling, because I think with distance, you do notice like some of the flaws to it. And you certainly notice the things that other people learned from it that maybe they shouldn't have and particularly DC, like the lessons they took from it and just kind of ran with until they were in a complete cul-de-sac. But it still is a really 
entertaining movie and it's kind of hard to think of a more exciting performance in a superhero movie than Heath Ledger playing the Joker, which still mm. maintains a lot of its power since then. Like it's still really funny and really unnerving and upsetting. Like the bit of him where he's torturing that that guy dressed as Batman and he's talking into the screen and he holds it right up to his face. I remember seeing that for the first time and being really unnerved by it. And even now it's like, yeah, this still, even though it's obviously in a, a silly comic book context, is still like a really, really upsetting <laughs> moment in a big, hugely successful blockbuster. Mm. He's always been, um, in my mind, a great villain in that uh, movie because you genuinely don't know what he's going to do. Mm, um, yeah. scene, scene to scene and you know even though he explains the idea that he is you know chaotic and represents the forces of um, of chaos mm-hmm. um, and it's all it's ugliness but all it's fairness yeah you never know which way it's going to fall and Heath Ledger did such a great job of bringing that to the screen um, whilst also making it compelling and part of the story and not managing to overwhelm the whole thing yeah and I think what's nice watching it now is that there are certain things in it which are like are now kind of beyond parody, like, you know, why so serious and, you know, do you ever tell you how I got these scars and all this sort of stuff? Like, it's fun watching it now and trying to pick up the smaller details. Like this time, the thing that made me really laugh is during his first scene where he is being, he's confronting uh, Michael Jar White and he has his like, coat lined with grenades and Michael Jar White says to him do you think you're going to rob us and walk out and Heath Ledger just quietly says yeah <laughs> he like <laughs> he completely underplays it and just kind of like throws it out there and it's it's almost lost in the mix but it's really like his delivery of it I found like really really funny he's just like yeah this guy's uh, insane and unpredictable but also he is really confident and knows what he's about yeah and like he kind of if I think about The Dark Knight, I don't ever think of Batman. Mm. Um, and I think I'll get into this uh, a little later when we're talking about the kind of the toxic fandom that is, appears to have, uh, you know, it found its patient zero in, in, in The Dark Knight. Mm. Um, but um, it brings to the fore the fact that Bruce Wayne slash Batman is a pretty boring character. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as soon as another... Like, he's not even, like, in the top five most interesting characters in that film. Like, mm-hmm. uh, Commissioner Gordon is a much more interesting character in this film. Um, Harvey Dent is a much more interesting character in this film than, than Bruce Wayne slash Batman, um, which is uh, kind of weird, given that his name's on the movie. Yeah, I think he also doesn't get as many funny lines as I think they give him in Batman Begins, which isn't, like, a, it's not a movie that has a ton of good jokes in it because like Christopher Nolan's just not funny uh, mm. like humor has always been a real lacking part of his work either because he doesn't include jokes when maybe they could be there or he does include jokes and they're like more like half arsed observations that are played as jokes but like in at least that one you have that moment when he's being shown all of the gadgets by Lucius Fox and he just kind of like says does it come in black and it's like it's kind of this kind of like a funny kind of like delivery and it's kind of like establishing him as this guy who has a certain way and a certain charm to him and particularly when he plays up his Bruce Wayne playboyness. Like there's not really that much in this one. It's more just like, 
oh, right, you're going to punch people maybe slightly awkwardly because um, some of those fight scenes do feel a little stilted and overly choreographed, particularly when he is fighting uh, all those guys in Hong Kong. Like, mm-hmm. you can really tell that at certain points, Christian Bale's like, punch, hold for a second, grabs the gun, hits guy, hold for a second. It's like, hmm. Yeah, this this could have been a bit more fluid, uh, but I guess that's just the limits of the suit. Uh, or he's there to be kind of like morose. You know, he doesn't really have a huge amount of... He doesn't really have that many moments to shine. And every time he's on screen with Heath Ledger, it's like, oh, you're just getting acted off the screen here. Not that he's giving a bad performance. It's just more like, oh, this guy is uh, magnetic and charismatic. Mm. Do you think that... Some of the criticisms about the third act of uh, The Dark Knight are valid, that it's much weaker than the rest of the movie. I do. I don't mind the two boat stuff so much. Like, I think it works as, like, an, uh, I guess, as, a, as an elucidation of the philosophical points that Christopher Nolan wants to make. But for me, like, watching it this time, I thought, oh, this is exactly the same movie as Spider Man 3 except it's a little more successful and a little better at juggling it. And it doesn't have kind of like the tonal shifts that that movie has in that you have two thirds of a movie that work as one story. And then suddenly it's like, Oh, by the way, now you have to do this for the final act. I was watching it today and I thought if you end it at the moment when Rachel gets blown up Mm -hmm. and have that as like the middle part of your trilogy. And then the second, the third movie is all about him fighting against Two-Face, then Mm. you have maybe a much stronger uh, series of films overall, whereas that one, like, the suddenness of with which Two-Face suddenly becomes introduced and becomes the villain, I think, does unbalance it. Because you don't really... Suddenly, the movie has to scramble to make sense of all this stuff. And obviously, Heath Ledger's death means that they couldn't do that. Uh, mm-hmm. even if they wanted to, even if that was the plan. And I think I remember reading at the time that that kind of was what they were going to do. Like if they did it, if uh, they did a third movie uh, immediately after Dark Knight, instead of having the the inception in between the two, then it would have involved the Joker in like a, a reduced capacity and then maybe another villain. But obviously Heath Ledger's death meant that they couldn't do that. But yeah, I, I do feel like that third act lets it down and kind of makes the movie really unbalanced. Mm, But it moves at such a pace that you kind of don't care. Are you surprised to see The Dark Knight still kind of 10 years later in the top five of the IMDb top 250? Uh, Not really, just in the sense that, like, I don't think there's been a huge amount since then that really galvanizes the culture in quite that way like that was one where it was it was just before everything got nitpicked to death which i think also is a large part of why its appeal still lasts like before every blockbuster had to be torn apart and you had to everyone separated out into kind of like the two rival camps about whether or not it was a good or a bad movie or whatever Mm -hmm. and i think that the clarity with which you know everyone seemed to or the consensus that pretty much everyone liked it meant that it was going to be up there. It's kind of the same thing with like Shawshank Redemption. Like I think probably more people are very passionate about the dark Knight being a great movie than are about Shawshank being a great movie, but there's just such a wide swathe of people who like it 
that it's, it doesn't surprise me that it's it's up there. Whereas, I don't know, something like Mad Max Fury Road, which is, I, I would say is probably a better action movie and a better movie across the board, is also in the IMDb Top 250, uh, but has such kind of like wildly diverse reactions to it that it would never be able to kind of have that level of consensus that The Dark Knight has. Mm, yeah, I'm kind of... Uh, I was surprised because when it first came out, it, it kind of rocketed straight to the top of that list and, and mm. kind of everyone was like, well, this is clearly just a hype. And it's died down to the degree that it's not number one anymore, mm. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's still up there. But I didn't, don't really feel as bad about it being up there as I do something like... I know it just looks now, but Return of the King is uh, is in their top 10 mm-hmm. uh, of movies of all time. It's the only other film from the 2000s that is in there. And, you know, that's not a particularly great movie. Um, and then that makes me feel less sure of the public's grasp of what's good and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Or certainly the people who vote for such things grasp of, uh, of what's good and what isn't. Um, because whilst you see the Godfather movies up there, yeah, those two are also in there as well. I think also a part of it is probably the fact that The Dark Knight is still held up as a gold standard for comic book movies. And mm-hmm. there are so many comic book movies that have been made in the year since then. You know, that that was the year where you had The Dark Knight came out a couple of months after Iron Man did. But then that mm-hmm. was basically it. And also the, the Hellboy 2. But like, that was like more or less it and then like 2009 i don't think you had any comic book movies and maybe 2010 you only had iron man 2 like it was a time when there weren't quite as many as there are now where we're getting like five or six a year or something like that and now Mm. and there's been so many more since then that i think that each one that comes out which is kind of good but doesn't really kind of set the world alight probably makes the dark knight look better in comparison and like mm. really is why it's still held up as like oh this is what uh superhero movies should aspire to whether or not that's true is obviously another matter but that certainly is like within the the culture of people who really are into superhero movies and talk about them it's it's kind of still held up as as the movie to beat mm. do you think that it kind of moves outside of the mold of the superhero movie by not aping other superhero movies by trying to be heat yeah essentially yeah, yeah. Uh, which I, I kind of having only seen it for the second time it i really noticed how much it did like kind of mimic heat not only through the the kind of cinematography and the the, the pacing and then the tone but also the music or their mm. lack of or and the the sound design as well yeah, you really notice it during the big truck chase sequence in the mini- middle of the movie, which is mm. not like any sequence in Heat. Like, they don't flip a 18-wheeler in Heat, as far as I can remember. Maybe in the director's mm, cut. Um, but, like, certainly they're the thing that's really notable about that, like you say, is the lack of music. There's only... The only bit of music that plays during that entire 10, 15-minute sequence is when the Bat Pod first appears. You hear a bit of the, the Batman theme, the Hans Zimmer and james newton howard theme and then again after batman's pod has crashed and the joker is oh no when the joker is advancing on batman and shooting you get this kind of like dark undercurrent of music playing up and i think that that is a clear inference of of heat of 
not uh, layering on music and just having people kind of have to sit there with the intensity of the action without kind of goosing it by adding in like dramatic strings. Mm. Yeah, we also start with a heist as well, which is with uh, William Fink, who is yeah. also in Heat. Yeah, there's so many people in it, and I always keep mm. forgetting that Eric Roberts is in it. And when he yeah. turns up, I'm like, oh god, this guy. <laughs> he is in most films. He, well, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago. He's in a film with Michael Flatley coming up, but he's also <laughs> here. He is. Uh, Christopher Nolan must have thought, Do you know what? Get me Eric Roberts. Mm. A few of my friends uh, years ago, we were looking up, we were looking in a trivia book, and there was a whole thing in there about you know the Kevin Bacon game, and the question of who is the most connected actor in Hollywood, and it's now currently Eric Roberts because he's just in so many movies of so many different kinds and on so many different levels that he's more connected even than uh, the previous winner, which was Rod Steiger who was the person who had the most connections previously to that. Wow, there we yeah. go. Prolific, but not uh, not necessarily consistent. Mm. Yeah, that would go on his gravestone. <laughs> Do you feel any differently about The Dark Knight? Well, certainly I haven't watched it since seeing The Dark Knight Rises, which I did not enjoy particularly mm. uh, a lot. Uh, I do. It looks better in comparison. mm because it really feels as if Christopher Nolan has a firmer grip on what he's trying to say about, like, America at the end of the Bush era, you know, about the question of safety versus liberty and freedom and surveillance state and things like that. He's trying to weave all of these kind of heady concerns into a popcorn action movie, and The Dark Knight Rises, by comparison, feels, like, completely incoherent in terms mm. of its philosophy or what it's trying to say or how it relates to the Occupy movement, which is like a, the, the probably the element of that movie that has aged the worst, uh, just because I think the, the Occupy has receded so much from the cultural memory. Although, like, a lot of people in Occupy are now kind of, like, involved in, like, leftist politics. So it's not like... It's something that still has an influence, but, like, it's not as recognisable a thing as you would expect you know, for a major blockbuster to have a whole element of it kind of uh, included. But also, like, and this is no slight to Tom Hardy, who does the best that he can, that Bane is just not as interesting or compelling a a villain as the Joker. And the Joker, I think, ruined, as as good as that performance is and as, as much as he does to elevate the movie, I do feel as if that ruined... The character of the Joker for pretty much anyone who wants to play him going forward, but also kind of ruins, has ruined like the DCU as well, because like that's a high point that they've never been able to reach. I think that's probably true about the film in general. Like the the subsequent movies have tried so hard to copy what was done with the with Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, but they've just never been able to touch it and the pursuit of it has like as i kind of driven them down some some cul-de-sacs that have forced them to completely reassess reassess what the hell they're doing mm, yeah and we like that's something that we didn't talk about in the news but like the idea that the joker movie with Joaquin phoenix is actually happening yeah directed by todd phillips of all people mm. i saw there was a, there was an interesting 
news piece uh, that misprinted the budget. It's, uh, it's a significantly lower budget than most DC films at $55 million. Mm-hmm. Um, but someone had put $55. And I was like, <laughs> I'd watch that. I'd watch mm. a Todd Phillips-directed Joaquin Phoenix-starring Joker movie that cost $55. Mm-hmm. It's a five obstructions um, <laughs> uh, project. Yeah, it'd be like Primer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, with a significantly more recognisable cast. I guess it would just be Joaquin Phoenix in face paint menacing real people on the street. <laughs> I guess <laughs> just uh, an, uh, uh, a completely restructuring of the uh, I'm still here concept. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't like I'm still here, but I would rather watch that than uh, a Joker origin story where if yeah. you believe everything that's been told, we're going to find out his surname and his real name. It's just like, oh God, like, who, again, who's clamoring for this? Who wants this? Especially since, like, one of the things that the Dark Knight does very well is, you know, the whole Joker origin thing is obfuscating it and having him tell different stories and just kind of keeping the question uncertain about where this guy comes from. Like, what's important is that he represents a chaotic force, not who he is. And the more Mm. you try and explain that, the less interesting he is. That's also kind of like the big one of the, the the main problems with how the Joker is treated in the Tim Burton Batman movie, which I still enjoy a lot. And like Jack Nicholson is clearly having a ball uh, in that role. Like having him be the guy who killed Batman's parents is so, yes, yeah, it's just so, so annoyingly neat and mm-hmm. uninteresting compared to, you know, the question the, like what they do in Batman Begins, where it's like a drifter who is hired by nefarious forces and then he dies before Bruce Wayne can do anything about it. And so he's left with like that gnawing sense of incompletion. Whereas like if the Joker is the one who kills Batman's parents and then Batman kills the Joker, then it's like, well, guess that story's done. Mm-hmm. Guess he can take the cape off. Yeah. And stop, stop, you know, reclaim some of his weeknights. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, you know, he needs it. He's, he's a busy man. Yeah. Kidnapping whole Russian ballerina teams. Yeah, companies. that was a weird bit. Like, you know, they've got contracts. Mm. They've got... The show must go on. They can't just knob about on a boat somewhere. Yeah, I guess that's also... that. That's one of the things they did in Justice League as well, wasn't it? With uh, Batman buying the whole bank. Bruce Wayne buying mm. the whole bank so that the Kent farm wouldn't be foreclosed upon. God, that movie. Yeah. yeah, that that that. Yeah, so let's let's talk about I guess the legacy of the Dark Knight because I do think it stands up pretty well as a film. But like in terms of the influence it had, I think it on blockbusters more broadly. I think it forced everyone to try and be a little more self serious for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, like everyone wanted to make their version of the Dark Knight, and uh, I don't think that was particularly beneficial to making movies enjoyable. Whereas what everyone probably should have been doing is looking at the Marvel thing and trying to copy them, uh, which they only did after it was too late and they realised, oh, wait, Marvel have taken all the money and we can't catch up at this point. But because initially The Dark Knight was more successful than Iron Man by a considerable magnitude, uh, it, it seemed like, oh, what, like Christopher Nolan has discovered the secrets to making wildly successful blockbusters they're also critically acclaimed and the secret is make everything really quite kind of serious and portentous. Mm, yeah. 
A lot of the the kind of toxic fandom stuff we see now, mm. um, and that we've talked about at length on this show. You mentioned something when we were talking about doing this about how the Dark Knight might have been what kicked all this off. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, is it because and I I kind of I kind of I understood what you meant when you said that, but when watching it, I was like, the main things I was thinking were. The, the people, the anyone who is in the mind of of kind of a, uh, of a that mindset of being kind of like a like a toxic asshole on the internet would mm-hmm. instantly be drawn in that movie to the two people to look up to are the Joker and Batman. Yeah, um, the Joker is not a good role model particularly, um, <laughs> and is a maniac. And um, Bruce Wayne slash Batman is a, you know, a bored billionaire who is, you know, uh, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, who dresses as a bat and uh, beats criminals within an inch of their life, Mm. uh, which is something that no one really wants to aspire to. But these are the two role models that the the impressionable uh, males are being presented with in this movie. Yeah, I think that is a big part of it. I think the veneration of the Joker by people online in particular, like you do see people like quoting him with like memes and things like that as if he has some sort of like coherent philosophy that people should be following as opposed to uh, it just being a bunch of lines that uh, Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan thought sounded cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's a part of it. But I think also what you saw... Uh, was that was the first instance or at least like one of the most high profile instance of people sending like death threats to film critics who didn't like the movie which happened more with the dark knight rises because a lot more critics didn't like the dark knight rises but Mm -hmm. like there are there are cases where like the handful of critics who didn't like the dark knight were like um we were saying like yeah i don't really like this it's kind of like really self-serious and it's not particularly enjoyable and then they just got like loads of hate for it from online people sending them emails just telling them to kill themselves and things like that and, and so that's kind of where it starts a little bit but this it also was a real watershed moment for geek culture being so at the fore and so part of the mainstream and all these people who had wanted who had like been reading comics for so long and who like wanted the thing that they loved to be cool and popular so that they by proxy would then be cool and popular suddenly that being the biggest movie in the world and one of the most successful movies of all time uh, i think really accelerated what we've seen now of people identifying with their pop culture they like so much that any slight on that pop culture is considered a slight on them and then they react virulently against it and so whilst i don't blame the dark knight for that like i don't think that that's something they could have foreseen it certainly is an important moment in that development that then takes you to things like gamergate and just kind of like online harassment campaigns against people who make movies that people don't like for whatever reason Mm. I wonder, I can't remember because it was a while ago now, but whether or not there was any kind of like people who who didn't enjoy the movie. Well, I suppose there wouldn't have been, wouldn't there? Because if Iron Man came out in the same year, there was, there'd be no accusations of people who didn't like The Dark Knight uh, as being under the employ of Disney or Marvel. Mm. Well, Disney didn't even own Marvel at that, Marvel at that point. Oh shit, so. they didn't. What a weird no, thing. That... I just, 
assume they own everything all the time. Yeah, that that took a couple of years for that to happen. Yeah, I think it was more. Uh, yeah, I think it was just more that they thought they were being killjoys or whatever, or that they were like, like I say, like they were impugning people for liking the movie as opposed to offering up their considered opinion, which is that I don't particularly like what this movie is doing. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so it wasn't quite the 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 tinfoil hat payola conspiracy theories that we've got since then. Mm. Remember the time where people had considered considered opinions and were respectful. Mm. Uh, it, it all ended ten years ago. <laughs> this very night. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the ghost of reasonable discourse suddenly comes and haunts us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any anything else uh, that you kind of like? want to say about the dark knight as someone who uh only watched it once and kind of is revisiting it and therefore maybe haven't been kind of steeped in the conversations about it over the years because like i i like i say i hadn't watched it in like six or seven years but certainly when it came out and working for a fairly prominent games company as i did where everyone was talking about batman and comics all the time um like for a good couple of years there it was something that i felt like i was really steeped in and so it was kind of it was for me it was very refreshing it watching it thinking oh yeah separate from all that it's a pretty fun movie yeah it's it's a good movie i would say that i found the only really relatable characters to be um morgan freeman's character michael Caine's character and gary oldman's <laughs> character although gary oldman does pretend to be dead and doesn't tell his wife um yeah. which is that was pretty rough man yeah. Um, and his plan to be dead, I'm not sure whether he was planning to take the bullet or whether he was just like, oh, okay, I've been shot and I survived, let's just pretend I'm dead mm-hmm. to go from here, or whether it was part of the plan all along. I'm not 100% sure. Um, I'm not sure it's that important. Uh, appreciate the movie for everything it does. I do feel like uh, Christopher Nolan always constructs his films in in a way which demands respect because he has such an amazing command of film kind of language and grammar. And he, he seems to be someone that if he could tap, like tap into any kind of like real emotion, he would probably be the greatest filmmaker ever because mm-hmm. he has all the technical facets um, and he can kind of pretty much handle any genre it appears uh, maybe apart from comedy, but yeah. like you know, if if he had to deal with you know likable characters and relatable people and, and relationships, um, that's when the whole thing would fall apart. Yeah, it certainly seems to be for me, and not not in, just in terms of like Hollywood learning the wrong lessons from this, where they all think everything's got to be serious and gritty and dark and uh, bereft of joy, um, which certainly is like for, from DC's perspective gives us like man and man of steel and the whole Zack snyder universe which was a dreadful mistake but i think like yeah his the success i think was detrimental to him for at least the next couple of movies of his career because suddenly everything has to be on a huge epic scale everything has to be elaborate to the point of being unrelatable and it all has to be and also like plotting goes out the window as long as it achieves like an emotional end because, mm-hmm. like, you do see that a lot in, uh, certainly, Interstellar and Inception both have that. Oh, Interstellar's awful. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, every so often I remember going to see Interstellar and I get angry. Because I, mm-hmm. I do not care for that movie. But, like, certainly this one, there's that sense of, like, does the Joker's plan make even the slightest bit of sense on how he's going to escape? No, not really. But, you know, it's in it's in service of 
giving you something that's like exciting and enjoyable to watch until that level it works but like that certainly seems to be up until dunkirk which i think is probably one of his best movies and is more grounded in like emotion than than anything he's done for a while and certainly is is less reliant on kind of plotting that makes no sense because he's wedded to actual history so stuff actually has to happen like his the movies that he's made since then all seem to disregard like sensical narrative in terms of emotion and sometimes that works but maybe if this movie hadn't been quite such a success he would have uh, honed his craft as a storyteller a little more than he did yeah because it's, it's weird to think about um, interstellar because it popped up on my letterbox the other day and i gave that film four stars when it came out Wow! and now i think about it and uh, that was not a four-star movie and i must have just been so uh taken with the ambition possibly mm. i'm not actually entirely sure it being a serious space movie and as not having had one of those for a long time yeah, a film that I really do not want to revisit at any point in my life. Yeah, I'd be interested to re- to re-listen to the episode you and I did on that because I remember really disliking it, and I don't, I don't, I couldn't, I couldn't remember if we disagreed on it or not. But I think we must have if you gave it four stars, and I, I walked out of it just furious. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Go back to that. I can't remember what happened. Uh, yeah. I don't remember it being a contentious episode at all. No, just more being like, oh, it's a shame you didn't like it. It's like, yeah. I guess. Mm, yeah, yeah. So we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about pieces of culture that we've enjoyed and that we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Uh, as many people have kind of known from like talking about it at the start of the year, I've been trying to work my way through uh, the like trying to complete a 52 films by women kind of. I wonder when I say challenge because it makes it seem like I'm just racing through them and not trying to learn anything about myself or anyone else at the time, but I'm trying to watch as many films as I can directed by women this year um, with the aim of being uh, trying to do at least 52, one a week. Um, and I've been very much enjoying my uh, my, my trip uh, through work by uh, female filmmakers. Um, and this week I saw a, a very good film um, on Netflix called Cargo, mm. um, which is something that I kind of just ignored when it first came out um, because it's a Netflix movie and it's a zombie movie and those two things don't really appeal to me but actually watching it um, and then reading about it afterwards and, and it's you know got very positive reviews and you know been generally well received um, it's a film that has a lot of good ideas uh, which the zombie genre is particularly lacking uh, it's a character driven zombie film which features Martin Freeman kind of trekking through the Australian outback um, with a uh, infant on his back um, trying to uh, survive having been infected with a disease which will it's a 48 hour death sentence mm. and um, there's a lot of interesting ideas uh, that come from um, issues of uh, kind of Aboriginal rights to land and um, like colonialism and also the ideas of what people would do in the terms of planning for what happens after a zombie epidemic is over. 
Um, and there's yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. There's a lot more there than meets the eye, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And the directors are Ben Howling and Yolanda Ramke, who have done an excellent job of adapting their own short film that they made uh, into a feature-length debut. And I, we said that we talked about this before we started recording tonight, but the uh, Netflix really do a terrible job of shouting about the good films that they have mm-hmm. um, because they, the effort they put into you know plugging the shit that they do. Yeah. Um, is you know it's not really equivalent to to how whether they've acquired it or whether they've made it themselves they really should be pushing the stuff that gets good reactions more than than, than the other stuff and this is one of the ones that is yeah it's a good movie um, and I'd heartily recommend it and that's what I'm doing cool I'm going to recommend a podcast that I've been listening to a lot over the last sort of three or four weeks. It's a comedy podcast called Punch Up the Jam, which stars stars, yeah, I guess stars, mm-hmm. uh, Miel Brandu and Demi Wijuibe, who I think most people probably know from Twitter from his fake Will Smith raps that he does every kind of year for Oscar season. He'll come up with fake raps theme songs for whichever movies are most nominated and he also wrote on the first season of The Good Place. Uh, He's a very funny man and it's a very funny show in which they take a popular song and try and think of ways to improve it. So the first 40-50 minutes of every episode is them listening to all the lyrics and then talking about them and elements of the song they like, things that they dislike but uh, which is very very funny particularly when they have a really good guest on but the thing about the episode about the show which makes it extra special and has made it one of my favorite uh, newer podcasts are the punch-ups themselves which usually involve them taking a song and taking one particular element and accentuating it to create a new song and some of those results are absolutely hilarious uh, if people are interested in checking out i can recommend two particular episodes which i think are really emblematic of what the show does well one of which is the episode about uh, whenever wherever the shakira song mm-hmm. where they take the lyric uh, lucky that my breasts are small and humble so you don't confuse them with mountains and make that essentially the entire point of the song by having the new version be about someone saying how it's good that different parts of their body aren't don't get confused with different inanimate objects and trying to convince the person they're singing to that they are in fact a human being Mm -hmm. And the other one is uh, the most recent one where they take the Rockwell classic, Somebody's Watching Me, and turn it to Somebody's Doxing Me. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which the uh, the paranoia of the original song is updated for the modern age and yeah so punch up the jam it is a really really funny podcast uh which is is really worth checking out for anyone who needs some kind of like delightful silliness in their life mm. yeah that sounds very good i'm aware of those guys but i didn't know they had a podcast so i will check that out if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, and uh, you know, leave us a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>